and I see that uh, a person, so this executor with a big dagger approaching, there's somebody, a life um, is to be ended there. And all of that really, my heart started pounding and affected me, the man with a dagger approaching to, to chop a head. And I fainted. From Aura Studios, this is The Line of Fire with me, Ramita Navai. I've been working in conflict zones around the world for nearly two decades. And in this series, I talk to fellow journalists about covering war and the life-changing moments of confronting death. Welcome to The Line of Fire. My guest today is one of Afghanistan's greatest journalists. Multi-award winning Shweb Sharifi has been covering his home country for the last 22 years. He's a former BBC World Service Kabul bureau chief, launching the acclaimed political debate programme Open Jirga. Shweb is one of the few Afghan journalists who decided to stay on after the Taliban took power in August 2021. And he's currently the country director for BBC Media Action. Shweb, welcome. Shweb, we've known each other a very long time. We met, um, I remember clearly the day we met in 2005, and you were so helpful and so generous. I will never forget that. And you have a reputation for helping journalists, big names, freelancers alike that come through Kabul. I think uh, Afghanistan was off um, the media radar for four decades at least. Yeah. And when you and I met was the golden days of Afghanistan, when after 40 years of no connection to the uh, foreign world had opened, we had a full-fledged free press. And the intention, alongside being an Afghan and meaning you feel the sense of uh, hospitable, but also to help really the international world really understand that the true story of Afghanistan. I met you about three years after my first visit that I had come to Britain and whoever I bumped into and they said, oh, you're from Afghanistan. Oh, my God. Oh, Osama bin Laden, terrorism. And uh, I was really, I couldn't correct them. I couldn't change it just by saying, no, we are also, we have got a different side of the coin. We are also just a normal nation like anybody else. We also love a good life. We also love our families. We also love each other. And we also love the outside world. We also love to live in peace and be just go and play football and watch movie or do whatever and be kind to each other. So if one of the reasons being really helpful to visiting foreign journalists were to really help tell the story of Afghanistan, a true story of a very resilient but super kind people. Yeah, and I, I mean, I, I, I think that really strikes me about you, is that you live and breathe journalism. It's really clear how important it is to you. How did you start out in journalism? What made you decide to be a journalist? Um, Perhaps inspired by my grandmother, she was a great storyteller. I enjoyed and still until now I'm benefiting quite a lot from what I received from my grandmother. But also we had a weird competition in our neighborhood. 
Uh, it started with learning English, and every boy in my age, 15, 16, wanted to learn English. There were, were not many courses. A lot of us were doing self-studies, and I had a secret weapon, and that was the BBC, thanks to my father that helped me record the BBC World. And I would listen to it and listen to it, imitate, imitate again and again and again. I must have listened to one piece of news 10, 20, 40 times just to pick up the accent, just have an upper hand amongst my friends on the street that, wow, where, how, not even being exposed to a foreigner, you have the accent of a foreigner. And then uh, I heard when I was just about a late 17 or early 18 that one of my rival boys on the street got a job as become a presenter in English program in Radio Voice of Sharia. So that was the Taliban. What was Radio Voice of Sharia? So that was uh, Radio Afghanistan when Taliban took over in 96. They renamed Radio Afghanistan as um, Radio Voice of Sharia. Mm -hmm. So it didn't matter anything. I wanted to also be presenter. I have the accent. He doesn't, but he got a job. I went there and I passed the accent test, but I failed the beard test. I didn't have... Uh, beard and well I was too young as well for that but how old were you um, I was just 18 perhaps so hang on a minute so you're 18 years old Mm. and your friend had got a job with Radio Sharia that was the Taliban's radio station yes and you also wanted a job there I also to beat your friend. <laughs> to be my friend on the street. I had the best accent and that friend got a classic job. Classic journalist, said, classic no, competitive yes, journalist. I it was in your blood. Be there because, so how come I went there and I said, look, I have this uh, the accent. It was the English program. So the Taliban in the first uh, reign, uh, 96 to 2001, they also broadcast uh, in the radio voice of Sherry Arabic program and English program as well. But I unfortunately failed that, and it was such a disheartening uh, moment. I wanted it at no cost. I wanted to be a presenter. I couldn't change. I couldn't put an artificial so beard. So what, what did they say? Did they did they tell but, you that the beard was a requirement? How did they say that you failed that test? Just by bad luck, I would say it happened that in that month, perhaps, the Mullah Omar, the former slain leader of the Taliban, had issued a decree that nobody who doesn't have a beard should be civil servant, and those who do not have a beard naturally are deemed as underage and are not qualified to be recruited. And I guess, Shreve, let's just explain this for listeners who may not know why beards are so important to the Taliban. And even now, you know, they, they issued a decree, didn't they, saying that they advise all men to grow their beards. And that's because the Prophet had a beard. Yes, yeah, so... Uh, the Prophet had a beard. They say it's Sunnah, so the practices of the Prophet. Uh, one of the practices that he had never shaved his beard, they say it's, uh, you need to also have um, a long beard. So it's not just a beard. It has to be big and bushy. A big and bushy <laughs> beard. And to have a big and bushy beard, I didn't have a big and bushy beard <laughs> naturally, even when I until 22 or 23. So it was a shattering blow for that moment. And I wanted to come into journalism willy-nilly by any means. and mm. um, <clears throat> Even if it meant working for the Taliban? Well, the thing is, before that was a brutal regime. Before the Taliban was a brutal regime. Before then was an even brutal one. So for four decades, people lived. People had to work for a ruling government. So it wasn't a new thing for me because my dad was a general of the army for the pro-communist regime. And the regime had done so many killings and brutalities 
just before the Taliban, we had the Mujahideen government that, that, that triggered the civil war. Thousands were killed. So it was not a strange thing to be working for a government that is not... Um, that that is not a kind of democratic, democratic peaceful yes. government. So we we hadn't seen yeah. any example of a good one before. So it was just like my dad when in his age of job he went got, got a job to then ruling very brutal regime, and I was just happened to be mm. unfortunately his son was living at a time that there was yet another brutal regime. Afghanistan has been in crisis for over forty years. In 1979, the Soviet Union invaded sparking an insurgency, with conservative Islamists and ethnic leaders forming guerrilla groups known collectively as the Mujahideen. Foreign support for these rebels poured in from Pakistan, Iran, China and the US. After 10 years of conflict, the USSR finally withdrew, leaving one million civilians dead. Then followed a brutal civil war, and after that, militant fundamentalists the Taliban rose to power, enforcing their strict and twisted interpretation of Islam with ferocity. They were thrown out when US forces invaded Afghanistan in 2001, in response to the September 11 attacks. Then followed 20 years of more war and insurgency, with the US finally withdrawing in August 2021, leaving the Taliban back in power. So uh, it was... And, uh, something normal. And life carries on and you have to live and you have to live with what you've got. Yes, indeed. So just to still slightly twist what happened, how I then got into that. And at that time, an international media outlet wanted to train 10 cameramen, qualified, experienced cameramen, so that they would recruit two of them. And I, they asked me if I could translate. And I was a translator for 10 days of this advanced camera training. And after that, I really was so envious every day to see all these people with these advanced cameras. It was the first time in touch to camera then. But uh, just a week after that training, I met the person again and said, unfortunately, all of the 10, when their job descriptions were told to them, they all refused to take the job. And can you find me some other people that they're brave? The job was to go cover the front line or go undercover and cover the executions. The Taliban back then, routine, in fact, at least once a month, there were some executions, public executions at the sports stadium in Kabul. I said, look, I brought you the most experienced and the bravest. If they couldn't take it, others can't. And I saw an opportunity there. I said, look, I have learned quite a lot in those 10 days of translation. I had to understand the lesson to, to explain it to those camera people. I'm happy to pass the camera test and I would like to get this job. And I can do to any front line anywhere to this stadium, I can assure you. And I'm happy to pass this camera test. So he said, well, you know, you don't have to pass this camera test. There's an even more difficult test you have to pass. There was an execution happening, the next one happening next week or so. And if you manage to smuggle the camera in, if you can't film, somebody else could film it. You just, uh, if you could manage the, uh, to smuggle the camera inside this stadium. I said, no, I want to smuggle it in. I want to film if you give all this job to me. And I, with that, I will prove and that uh, uh, you promise that it is not my last assignment. And I'm happy to go to the front lines as well. I mean, Shway, uh, oh, whoa, back up. I mean, this is extraordinary that y you are told 
that if you want to get a job as a journalist, if you want a trainee job as a journalist, that the only way to do this is to smuggle a camera into uh, a former football stadium where the Taliban are carrying out executions. And you not only say that you're going to smuggle it in, but you're insisting that you're going to be the one secretly filming this. Yes, I... What were you thinking? <laughs> <laughs> well, in fact, in a way, an answer to your very first question, because if you wanted to become a journalist, you mm. had to work for the state media. Yep. And this one was the only opportunity to work for a non-state media, but also to have a better exposure to camera, to advanced thing that I would never have in my life. So I was really prepared to go to any means and ends to really get that. And to be fair to them, they were I was too insistent rather than them pushing me. Right. They were saying that, no, I think it is not good for you. We need to find somebody else. And I really said... It is me. Believe me, I can get that for you. Who was this? What, what was this organization? You can't say. Right. So it's an international organization. Yeah. So it, so you can't say for security reasons, but it was an international organization that wanted you to secretly film an execution. Why were you prepared to risk your life to do this? That was a window that I could see a bit of a fire there, but also a bright, big future beyond it into the career of journalism. Mm. I had to go through that. That was the only opportunity to find my way into the world of journalism. And I was I was super enthusiastic and I loved it so much that I, I hadn't thought about what it meant I was committing as well. I think I had, you know, when, when we're driving, we say this car has some blinds, uh, blind spots. Yes. <laughs> so yes. perhaps I had a lot of blind spots. I didn't know that they were a tiny little brightness that, wow, this is the opportunity now or never. I can do it. Get it. I mean, it's it's terrifying hearing your thought process, because if you had been caught, you would have been executed. Yes, yes. So tell me how you did this and what so, happened. Um, it's a stadium in the heart of Kabul. Normally it houses about 20,000 people, but on the days of execution, at least thirty to 40,000 people would come in that stadium. So the scene, if I explain to you, is like some of those gladiator movies that yeah. uh, people gather. When you're packed around an amphitheater. Yeah, and see that something killing is happening there. So out of shock, out of... Um, interest out of what people just come in and then the city that every other means of entertainment is forbidden uh, so there's only one thing well, unfortunately that's execution so still it tens of thousands of yeah tens of thousands would gather to see well what uh, whatever happens in a new city so I recorded it and I saw that uh, Taliban would rescue from top to bottom yeah. all the way outside but not and the, your, uh, I shouldn't say all of my secrets now, and you're inside <laughs> with thighs. Yes. So the camera was a Sony Handycam the size of a mag. So uh, a small mag. T-mag. Yeah, mm -hmm. so, yeah T-mag. And so I put it exactly on my right thigh. Remember, like now, tie it inside. Strapped it in. Inside, uh, yep. inside my uh, trouser. So mm -hmm. Afghan uh, shalwar kameez is very buggy. Mm-hmm strapped it and uh, I had uh, two, three other friends, one behind two uh, along my side to to help me in that really crowded 
entry, but still everyone got frisked. And because perhaps that, because not knowing that, not even looking what it meant if I was caught, for me it was what it meant if I got into meant I got into the whole world yeah. of journalism. You weren't thinking about the consequences. <laughs> Never. Didn't think about the consequences. So perhaps that gave me a very brave face yeah. that I got through inside the stadium. And it was my first time as well inside that stadium as well. So as a just uh, so you had never gone to a public execution. Prior no, I had to never this. gone even to a, a, a big stadium to watch football as well. So in my life, because I I pointed to the civil war happened, the age that I should have been playing football or have had friends to go to stadium was all on the run because of war. Yeah, and the first time in my life I entered <laughs> a stadium that was meant for football, there was an execution, but it still was beautiful for me it was i had never seen that uh, russian built stadium mm. uh, built by the soviets and the crowd so everything is quiet but so it was jam-packed on the walls wow so it was estimated between 30 to 40,000 people and i wanted a safe enough uh, distance i can remember exactly like today's so I was just three layers above the announcers so they were the the board that would uh, the judges the Taliban officials would be there so I was three or four layer steps or stairs or rows above uh, rows. them you know, so you were three rows above the Taliban judges who were going to judge to the announce cases. the execution yeah right um, the moment, how it worked, so the person to be executed would be brought in. And then these uh, officials would say what happened. So often people accused of murder would be brought in. And then the case would be read by one of the officials. And in a way, they would plead to the audience saying, so this person has done, has killed his brother or neighbor or somebody. And we would really highly encourage him to pardon the victim's family to pardon. Mm -hmm. If the victim's family pardons, the so all of this is I'm hearing for the first time in my life. Yeah. I see that, and this. 30, so the the victim's family can pardon the accused, yes, and, and if they do, the execution won't yes, happen. Yes, the execution it's won't the happen. The same in Iran. Yeah, so it is there. They are mm. there. They're prison. Sometimes they would give the gun or uh, or the dagger to the victim's family. Yeah. So what is it called in Islam? Qasas. Mm -hmm. So, and then it's announced and encouraged in this 30, 40,000 people, you hear them say, Babash, Babash, pardon, forgive, 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 pardon, and mm. uh, very rarely you would see that the family would pardon. And then, so still, I'm... So the crowd are cheering for the accused to be pardoned, but it's up to the family of the victim. Yes, to, to pardon. And the family of the victim, you say rarely pardon. Rarely pardons, yeah. Right, which so, means the execution Yeah, so in ahead. this case, it, it went ahead. And for me, it still was like, I didn't know, I hadn't seen it. Because... Under the Taliban, TV was banned, a bit of background. So why I or many of people had not seen it and were coming to see it for the first time? Because it, uh, TV was banned, so uh, there were no TV stations. Filming was, was like a capital crime. You, of course, if you did no TV and filming, in my case, I was committing two crimes. A, filming was banned, so you should not be filming. And then I was doing secret filming for something that was happening and was prohibited. So it was... Um, Double execution. Yeah, <laughs> Double execution. <laughs> You've been caught. But uh, 
I started feeling uneasy when they are saying if the moment is uh, reaching where they're saying that, okay, okay, there is no pardon, the family says this uh, has to happen. And I'm feeling slightly uneasy to see what is really happening. And in that case, a lot of the time, executions would happen at the gunpoint. So they would just turn the gun and... A lot of them, they would bring one for execution, one person, if uh, somebody was accused of a robbery, would uh, bring it to her, her chop hand or so on. So I've got my camera, I've got one friend on my left, one friend on my right, and one behind me so that they sort of cover me and I've got this shawl. It's kind of a big Afghan uh, scarf for men that uh, you would wear it. Uh, so, so you've unstrapped it from your yeah, leg yeah, yeah, I and you're holding it, it up. It's in my now. hand and, it, and I see that... Uh, a person, so this executor with a big dagger approaching. Um, I'm seeing it now. <laughs> explaining the picture sounds so horrible to me. So I, my heart starts pounding that there's mm. something happening. There's something. It is, I think, if I explain it, that I felt that a sh shortage of power is happening in your brain, that mm. the shortcut is happening. Mm. At high speed, brain is trying to process what you're seeing. Where mm. are you prepared to see that? There's somebody, a life um, is to be ended there. And all of that really, my heart started pounding and affected me. The man with a dagger approaching to, to chop a head. And I fainted. So... Oh, I'm, oh, I'm holding it to that moment, the moment that I was assigned for... So I fainted. I had not seen that. And my family as well, they were always taunting me. You know what? You you hate gun. You don't like fire. When they were, you know, celebrity firings, I didn't like it. They'd uh, tease you. Yeah, they were teased being me. being the scaredy cat. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm there and say, oh, gosh, they were perhaps right. Oh, my God, what is really happening? I mean... And luckily, I had my three people that... Uh, so you fainted, uh, you fell to the ground. No, I fainted and they got it, I think. They, with a shivering voice, I told them that I'm fainting. And I fainted perhaps for a short moment and they... Mm. Uh, they Your just friends propped you up. Propped me up, but also, uh, of course, they covered the cameras, well, only to manage to, to take me out. And that was <laughs> my first... It had a failure and a success. Success that I really got the camera and the failure was that I wasn't prepared. I was too young, perhaps, had never seen it. It didn't even mean what that meant to see an execution real from that uh, uh, distance. But um, in a way, at least I passed the test that I could if I other assignments that I managed to bravely get the camera in. And that was the beginning of... Um, Unfortunately, that was not the last time I would go into that stadium, Ramita. I went multiple other times. Unfortunately, I didn't faint, I would say. <laughs> because, shall I say, that? I was not, I mean, I didn't like it to say I was desensitized. Yeah. But uh, I saw it. So I that was the beginning. I saw it and I went a couple of times without the camera. And then I went with the camera. And fortunately, there was the practice there. But then I went... Uh, to the front lines, particularly north of Kabul, there were quite uh, a lot of things, horrific things happening. I mean, Shweb, 
the execution videos, the, the films that you did take, it can't be underestimated, the effect they had. It was the first time outsiders were seeing the Taliban's brutality up close because your execution films were broadcast around the world. Yes, indeed. And how, how did that make you feel when you realised your videos had caused shockwaves around the world? Well, in a way, shall I be honest and say, feel me, make me feel good and bad. Yeah. Good, well, of course, you were... I was not and I still am not an anti-Taliban person back then. I was just there to whatever's happening, tell the story and mm. make the world judge. Definitely not a campaign or pro or against on anything. So feel good that I managed to do a story. In a way, feel also bad. I feel also being part of telling a lot of those negativities happening in Afghanistan, mm. that it took us years to repair the image of Afghanistan, that mm. we are not just people because of executions. We're not just the host of the Osama bin Laden or terrorism. We are also just a nation with a rich history, with lovely culture, just a normal citizen, normal, like you, like you would have your neighbor, that they would love to have a family, they would love to watch football, they would love to believe in whatever they believe. We are just like that. But because of a lot of those reportings, whatever was attached to us was a lot was terrorism. Mm. And that was, we showed a lot of that to the world back then. Yeah. I mean, Shweb, I I remember those videos. It was 1999. There's one video in particular of a woman being executed. And that was haunting. And I understand what you're saying, that I guess you feel bad that you fed in to that narrative that Afghanistan yes. is full of murderous fundamentalists. But at the time, it was being run by murderous fundamentalists. I mean, at the time, this was important work that you were doing. You were letting the world know what was happening because the world didn't know. Yes, for me, that first assignment wasn't even for the sake of the world of the story. For me, it was to get into this <laughs> world of journalism. journalism. And then, yes, afterwards, I was going to really extreme ends and dangers because filming was forbidden and I was going to the front line, to the actual front line in film. I have seen and I have filmed so much uh, that some of the footage is still that I have I think, for security reasons, mm. it's not still shareable, but yeah. it's still I see it worth it one day is valuable that will be used in the future. So I do not regret why I had gone to that those extremes to really tell a story. And Shweb, explain to me, were you going to those extremes? Were you putting yourself in extreme danger to prove yourself as a journalist? Um, or were you doing that to... to, to in order to get work or to what extent were you doing that because that was the story and you felt it was important to get that out I think I felt that I had the abilities the contacts the knowledge of how to get into those places and do those stories yes I wasn't really keen on a lot only on the front lines unfortunately back then the front line stories would sell there was quite a lot of stories I could have done, but we wouldn't sell back then. So alongside us in 18, later 19, and a young, I was the only breadwinner for the whole family. I had to do stories that would sell. I was perhaps very, very few people that had 
the courage, the interest, enthusiasm, but also knew how to do it. Contacts, the language. Um, so had I not done particularly the frontline stories, mm. I can very firmly and proudly say that I was the only Afghan journalist that was going to do the Shamali frontline, filming how the fighting happened, how they fought, who were there, mm. who the, the Afghan fighters, the foreign fighters were, who these foreign fighters were, who they were as human beings. They had stories. They had. They were. They, I could see them. They could tell me also a lot that. Yeah. Uh, some of them were some really like young naive Afghans had just grabbed gun and be there and not like <laughs> me also naive not knowing the consequence of going into those danger zones uh, some of them as well so for me as well it was like every single day was like a degree or a university to go there and really not just tell a story but also learn find out more about your yes. country yes so y- you Continued journalism, continued to this day. So there was the invasion. Uh, then there was a new government, American-installed government. Um, and the war continued. Explain to me what it's like living and working in a state of conflict. L- living... I'm just trying, I'm pausing because the way we have survived, we say Afghanistan, we are a resilient nation. Um, resilient doesn't mean that we just keep quiet and tolerate and tolerate and tolerate. So I mean, alongside we fight, our mothers fight through difficulties, looking after kids and while there are showers of uh, mortar and rockets all over, these hero mothers and dads finding bread out of almost nowhere. But resilient means because I remember we would we would go to bed having only one piece of bread for a, a ten member family and my mother and the fighting next door and my mother would say okay go to bed son kids there's but as have thirty kilo shenis there's a light at the end of the tunnel I strongly believed mm-hmm. into that that little word of my mother shut. Every other negativity that, no, I would get killed tomorrow. Will I be able to go to school tomorrow or not? And the same throughout the 20 years of fighting post 9-11. We left with a hope. It is difficult. Let's carry on. Let's fight. Let's change it. But the future, always, I have always, even until now, sitting in front of you, um, uh, Ramita Kabul, Kabul being ruled by the Taliban and I'll be in Kabul next week. I'm I'm a super positive, <laughs> optimist person because we 40 years of war and God knows how long more. And you cannot just continue. Um, it is difficult, but in a difficult extreme situation, you just say, think positive. Mm. Whatever you have, make the best of that. Come up, uh, learn, cope and carry on. It has been constant learning, coping and carrying on, navigation and navigation and to navigate and find a bit of happiness together and live with that and think positive for the next steps. It's Ramita Navai here, and thank you for listening to my show. I hope you agree that these stories are not only powerful, but important. 
as I speak to some incredible journalists from around the world about what they've learned from working in dangerous places and how it's changed their perspective, it would be great to get your help in sharing their personal stories. So please do spread the word and subscribe, rate and review the show wherever you get your podcasts from. I hope you continue to be inspired by the series and I look forward to you joining me for more episodes. What are the logistics of working in a conflict zone? So how do you keep safe the day-to-day techniques of survival? Well, it's it's not about having an armored car, having a bulletproof jacket, and obviously it doesn't work. Some in, in some instances when you're in the front line, of course, you would need to have that as well. But I would say one thing above so many other things that I'm explaining is really trust your instincts as well. Listen to that. Do not ignore that. But it's constant. The same situation, the same place that you were a week ago, You would when you're going again, you really have to re-study, come up with mitigations and mitigations. And I would say live with plan A, plan B, plan C. Cover story A, cover story B, cover story C. Things change. You got to be constantly updating your mitigations. If I, if that's a bit vague, I, I would say that okay, there is a risk there. That that's the front line. You will go through route B, and what if the route B is closed? What if you asked and stopped and asked who you are, how you are, why you're going there? You need to have. Uh, uh, an answer for that. The way your outfit should be from your shoes to your uh, to your clothes and the way even you pack your camera inside there that can really save your life because you're, whether you choose to go on a taxi, on a lorry or on a, on a different means, you, it's just even in the middle of fire, there's a way to navigate and work. As long as you really study it, it has its weakness. You, but you should not, once you find it, rely on it constantly. At the very last minutes, also revisit it and, and carry on. I mean, your attention to detail is extraordinary because the advice you've given me working in Afghanistan, we've talked about what shoes I should wear, you know, what coat I should wear, what bag I should carry in order to blend in and fit in. And that really strikes me about you is that you're thinking of that constantly. How do you live with that? Because you live there. How do you ever drop your guard? Well, just an example of once on a bumpy road in southern Afghanistan, it was super bumpy. I was in a taxi, had blended had all those things ticked, looked so like local. But it was the driver was so dangerous. I put on my seatbelt. I said, no, this is so dangerous. And at the checkpoint, they stopped. They let everyone go and they told the driver that, I think you have, you're smuggling a human being in a taunting, teasing way. And I didn't know they meant me, the person who loves his life. And they knew because I didn't blend in just by the little mistake of, I shouldn't have put on my seatbelt. Put on your seatbelt. <laughs> Do you know, Shweb, that's so funny because, um, as you know, I was recently in Afghanistan and uh, health and safety, I was insisting everybody wears uh, a seatbelt and our driver said to me, I can't wear a seatbelt. If I wear a seatbelt at the checkpoint, they're going to pull us over. They're going to think it's so strange. <laughs> so I let him get away with not wearing a seatbelt. And you're yeah. absolutely right. It's these tiny details that can mm. give you away. But what I want to know is that how do you switch off from that? Because you go back home to Kabul, people know where you live, 
you you live the story. How how do you switch off? How do you disconnect? How do you separate the story from your everyday life? Uh, 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 there are times that I tell my um, fellow journalists who are like you visiting Afghanistan that yes, of course you are brave and you do those stories, but if you survive the fifteen or twenty days then you're good and you go away but we live there yeah we live yeah. it's pre-production post-production and post-broadcast yes the the more dangerous period is is not after you're done you've done the story and it goes to broadcast it's particularly after it's broadcast yes. that that you live with fear of what the will dust happen is settled often exactly isn't it? yes when you're expecting it the least yes and uh, you even there have been some very good films that I've until now I feel so bad that I because of its consequences after broadcast I didn't never wanted a, a credit for it mm. to be even in the end credits because uh, you're there and the people attached to you are there so you have to be kind to those around you to immediate family members and yourself as well and you need to be going to gym you need to go and buy your bread it's not always that you're protected when you're traveling. So you're too exposed. You, there are too many still weak points that you could be hurt or attacked. So, um, but you live with it. Uh, and even around that, you have to mitigate, unfortunately. You don't you buy bread from the same bakery that you would do every day because... So um, even living your everyday life, like buying bread from the bakery, you have to be careful and change your roots. I, I do that. Unfortunately, I, I lost one of my very dearest colleagues who um, that day had was on his bicycle with some bread back home. So it is not that uh, you somebody may get hurt while on duty. Well, once you have all these things attached to you, it lives with you. The what threat happened is, to your colleague? Well, um, <clears throat> he was on his, on his way home on a bicycle. Two people on a motorbike came, stopped and showered him with bullets and so he it was this was a targeted execution it was a targeted execution and on an on a relaxed uh, sunny day that he had just bought a, a piece of bread to go home and have with his family so are unfortunately you, you, uh, the th the risks and threats are would, you scared of that i will be wrong if I'm not scared of that because if you're not scared then you do not come up with mitigations and you're a reckless person I would say so it, fear is there of course and the fear causes you to think of mitigations how to live safely and securely what measures you have to put in place I think every profession but particularly this one really has a high bar of risks and threats and, and the, the, the downside with this though is that I mean I hope my wife doesn't listen to this podcast. Mm. You do not reflect that fear to the family because uh, in an Afghan culture, and maybe in every culture, the family members, the, the particular kids' hope is tied to the mother and father and the wife's whole hope is tied to the husband and you don't want them to know that you are too vulnerable, you're too fragile. You really have to appear strong, and that that is the difficult part. That it is good if you could share a bit of that fear with someone. But you have to suppress the fear yes. that you live with. Yes. Shweb, can you tell me about the threats you've received? <laughs> this is a difficult one because <laughs> yes, I understand for security reasons. Yeah. You. Okay. I guess you can't go into detail, but I guess what we can say, can we, is that you have always lived with death threats. 
this is a way of life for you. Yes. I mean, um, it just happened one of the days that I'm just giving examples of you get the signs. Six months ago, just a month before the Taliban, Kabul was experiencing its peak of target killing. Mm -hmm. Journalists were one of them, and particularly me leading a big uh, team of journalists in Afghanistan. And uh, that was the extreme days of really living with fear. You, and uh, that day just happened that I decided at the very last moment that I would work from home. Mm. And in the, it was in the beginning of the meeting that a bomb went off right in front of the gate of our block. And I jumped to the window, saw that the car I drove was blown into pieces, the same color. And I said, oh, my God. I thought my wife had taken the car and I was almost had a heart attack. And uh, my son rushed and said, no, 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 no. Um, uh, Mom is at my auntie's place. Realized that the same color, same model of car was hit. And a lot of these sort of fears, incidents that happens, you're so close. Yeah. You're so close to yeah. that. Some of these threats are... We jokingly say that they never call you to say, hey, I'm going to kill you. They really try. So don't wait for that call and live, exactly live. My advice for some of my friends is like live as if somebody is really tracing you. I'm not saying live always with fear. I'm just saying enjoy your life, but watch around as well. Be vigilant. I'm Mm. just saying be vigilant. Don't have a fearful life because at the end of the day, you really need to enjoy that cup of coffee and cup of tea. So don't live it with fear, but please. It's always in the back of your mind, (laughs) isn't it? It's always in the back of your mind. It is always in the back of your mind, yeah. Shweb, how do you maintain your integrity when you're in physical danger and you're under pressure from numerous factions not to report certain stories? when you know that you're getting threats and you're going to continue getting death threats? I think this is really, it is really difficult for, for local journalists when you're based there. Yeah. For the sake of your contacts, so you, you live there, they know where you live, and also you need access to some stories and to a certain extent you could have tea with one party or one side or a faction, but you always have your red line and uh, there would be times they expect you you interview them, they expect you that you're not going to ask them difficult questions. And you're aware of that. So this is the part when you have your relationship, your contacts, you have to go and meet and have tea and be in certain uh, get together. It is very good to give them that understanding, to educate them mm. when, while you're having tea, that the country needs what does it mean being objective and and it doesn't mean enmity. I think the best of you try, I found that, that if you really educate them that if I'm really critical, that I'm not an anti at all. I'm just, my profession requires me to challenge you and give you the floor to respond. But if I'm not putting your propaganda on, if I'm not just closing my eyes for a lie you say, it doesn't mean I'm your enemy. I think you have to make the other party understand that you're just, you're required by your profession and if they see that all the other side is also reflected, and as long as I believe, I always say to my friends that, hey, believe me, if you really stick to the values of journalism, and one of which says fairness, if you try to give the other party a, a right of reply, or you just say things that will really make your story fair, that it doesn't f- smell that you really have intentionally tried to um, attack one side or the other, uh, 
to some extent you're safe. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but you push the boundaries, I think, like few other journalists I know, because you live under constant risk, threat and pressure. But you feel that you can talk your way out of it often. <laughs> I, I strongly believe in th into that. Uh, yes. <laughs> I mean, you're a master mm -hmm. at it. And you have talked your way out of many a difficult situation. I mean, is that kind of how you operate in order to not censor yourself? I think, yes, it is particularly, uh, it is that very first conversation. It's that, that checkpoint, the way you even say hello. Yeah. So which tone you have to judge who is at that checkpoint, how you would say hello, how you would appear. Too much of a joke would be a problem, Let too much of seriousness and how you really communicate. Because at the other part aside, they are not robots, they are human beings. And they would have their anger. They would have also their humor. And if you really, you know, in, a, in short, you really need to be fully loaded with context and yes. uh, of that area you're going. If it is Afghanistan overall, and if it's a particular area of in Afghanistan, you really should know the context, the culture, the sensitivities, the strengths, the weakness, and then you can find your way out. Now, Shweb, you faced death many times in your work. But I want to ask you about the one moment that you were convinced that you were going to die. It was December 2009. You were covering a story about the Taliban and you had travelled to Kunar province in eastern Afghanistan. Talk me through the start of your day. It was a day, it was a beautiful sunny day. And like I'm sitting in front of you starting to confess on so many friends, one of which when I used to go to difficult and dangerous places. I didn't tell my mother and my wife because until I returned, they would really feel bad and I didn't want them to worry. It is hard to convince my wife and my mother that, look, I'm not a reckless person. I'm just putting some mitigations there if I'm going to a front line. So instead of that, I would say I'm going to X instead I was going to Y. So I'm, I'm often, a lot of the time, mentioned that I was going to a peaceful part of Afghanistan when I had gone that day to Kunar, which the Americans had tagged as the Valley of Death. So I had gone to really see there was a new wave of fighting Obama had just deployed 30,000 troops and wanted to see how it's reflected back on the Taliban. I received a call from my wife, said, where you are? And I said, well, you know, I'm in a very comfortable, lovely place. So I told you, and she said, I had a bad dream. Go home now. I said, look, don't trust dreams. She said, no, go and sit next to your mom now because I had a horrible dream. Something happened to you. I said, okay, I will. 30 minutes after that call, I was taken by the Taliban. We'll continue Schwab's remarkable story of being kidnapped by the Taliban on the next episode of The Line of Fire. It's one you won't want to miss. In the meantime, if you want to learn more about Schwab's work, I suggest watching his BAFTA-nominated documentary called My Childhood, My Country, 20 Years in Afghanistan. It's an extraordinary piece of work filmed over two decades. Schwab follows a boy called Mir while charting the evolution of his country since 9-11. You can watch it on ITV online. And Schwab's Twitter handle is at SchwabSharifi1. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please rate, review and subscribe. And tell your friends they can find us wherever they get their podcasts. Until next time. 
The Line of Fire is a podcast from Aura Studios. It was presented by me, Ramita Navai, and edited and produced by Chris Scott. Our executive producers are Matt Raz and Richard Osman.